0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Ingleton, the Dales town once popular with cavers, now an overnight stop on the Pennine journey with author and illustrator Mark Richards and Lakeland Walker editor John Manning. Hello. How are we doing? So it's the Country Stride Review of the Year, and over the next hour, we'll be going through some of our favourite clips from across the year. We'll get to hear from, among others, filmmaker Terry Abraham, producer David Powell-Thompson, campaigner Amy Bray, Pennine Way chronicler Andrew McCloy, and many more. And we'll be closing with something rather special. Mark, what have we got, This seasonal present for for our listeners?
1: Well, this is a surprise. Back in the 1980s, Ron Scholes from Leake in Staffordshire, who was an early correspondent with Wainwright, arranged to meet him and came and interviewed him and talked about the high roads of Lakeland. Hmm. So it's sat on his tape ever since and never had an airing and we
0: are magically being given the honour of playing it to our listeners. So that's something to look forward to at the end of the show. But before that, we're going to rewind to September, a cold, squally day, as we walk from Langdon Beck to Dufton in the company of Andrew McCloy. Uh, Andrew's written the definitive book about the Pennine Way. And you've chosen, Mark, a short clip recorded when we were just below the fabulous wind sill outcrop of falcon clintz there, uh, about the genesis of the Pennine Way and the role that Tom Stevenson played. So here's the voice of Andrew McCloy.
2: The first time that the idea for a continuous walking route, the length of the Pennines, was floated came from uh, access campaigner Tom Stevenson who wrote an article in the Daily Herald newspaper in 1935, a famous article entitled Wanted, a long green trail Now, he was a newspaper journalist at the time, tireless outdoor campaigner, um, and he'd received a letter from two girls from the USA who wondered if there was anything similar to the Appalachian Trail in, in Britain. And he replied, well, no, there isn't, but what if, what if we had a trail and he floated various names, a Great North Trail that ran the length of the Pennine Spine from the Peak District up into Scotland, Um, It would be a magnificent upland walking trail, a premier England walking route. And he he floated this idea in a double page spread, which has gone down into folklore history, followed it up with several other articles, and the idea for the Pennine Way was born. And this was a time, 1935, just three years after the Kinder Scout Mass trespass. Mm -hmm. So the notion of greater public access and a right of public access to the hills and the moors of Northern England were uppermost in people's uh, in people's minds, so that the time was ripe for Pennine Way. He was a remarkable man; he really was. He ended up being the long-time secretary of the Ramblers Association, but there was so much more to the man. He was self-taught. He left school in his in his early teens. He was a pacifist. He went to, he went to jail. He jailed for his beliefs, and yet he always remained dedicated. To people's freedom, and in particular, public access to the moors, his home moors and, and hills of northern England. And from an early age, he took himself off by foot and by bike to explore. And he championed access for the rest of his life. And the Pennine Way was was his baby. In many ways, you can take the Pennine Way as a 268-mile-long distance footpath on its own, fantastic premier route. But in fact, the subtext, always the subtext for for Tom was the campaign for access. The Pennine Way would be the lever to unlock public access to the hills.
0: Andrew McCloy there talking about the great campaigner Tom Stevenson and his Pennine Way. Why did you choose that clip, Mark?
1: It's significant that Andrew pointed out the importance of the Pennines as a place to go and explore. It had historically been a place of freedom to roam until the Industrial Age when people got barred from it and landowners have famously always tried to exclude people. So Pennines became very much the focus of that freedom to roam desire. And the Pennine Way became symbolic of a way of achieving a long-term aim to get freedom to roam in all sorts of settings. People are always going to put up the word private. People are always going to try and exclude people. So having statements like the Pennine Way are always going to be significant and an aspiration of people. Yeah, the the aspirational
3: thing, I think, is quite key to the Pennine Way. When when I walked it as a young adult, it was essentially a rite of passage. It's referred to as the backbone of England, and to be able to to walk the length of the backbone of England uh, is one of those things that maketh man, or maketh Mm. the man. Mm. A bit like the Ascent of Scarfell Pike should be a, a must for all Englishmen in the right attire of course, (laughs) but I I do worry that sometimes something like the Pennine Way, it's a very defined route and we now have, thanks to the the Crow Act, uh, which people like Kate Ashbrook, one of your guests fought for, um, has given us much better rights of access to the whole land um, and having a trail that is named like the pennine way almost ignores now that right of access that that wider right of access that we've got and i wonder if we should be looking towards not doing away with them obviously but making
1: people much more aware of of, of the freedom to roam that has been hard won. Tom Stevenson's message about it was that it was freedom to roam to the mountains, that that was its core meaning. So rekindling that purpose, uh, underlying purpose of having a trail or having various trails, so that it's not just having a Pennine Way, it's having a range of trails. A whole network, yes. A great network. A proper
3: integrated network.
1: An integrated network all of which play their part within the bigger story of telling people that we have a right, as
3: individuals, to explore wild country. It's the introductory thing, isn't it? The Pennine Way should be an introduction to the vast areas of the Pennines that are there to be roamed at will, you know. Don't fall Mm. down a mineshaft or anything. Mm. But A bit like Wainwright's uh, Coast to Coast Walk. um, Wainwright never meant us all to follow it slavishly afterwards. He wanted us all to be inspired and found our own ways across the country. I think we need to return to that
0: idea of these things just being a catalyst to greater adventure. Staying on the Pennine Way now for our second compilation of clips, you're going to hear from Kate Ashbrook, chair of the Ramblers. The second voice you may recognise, John, this is you uh, talking about your walk from Middleton in Teesdale to Dufton. Mm -hmm. And the third clip is us with andrew mark on the top of high cut so let's have a listen to these
4: about 10 years ago i did the most wonderful walk uh, in early may with a friend and we walked from langton beck over to dufton one day mm-hmm. uh, oh i mean that is just amazing along Isn't the maze brook and then suddenly high Cut nick you know oh, oh it's just fabulous and we stayed at the youth hostel in dufton and saw red squirrels and priest barrys i remember that very good and I got up the next morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> because even though I was pretty tired after that long walk, because I, I wanted a, It was just a beautiful day. And I went up Dufton Pike at that time in the morning. Amazing. And I looked down, and, and the shadow of the pike, the triangle, was against the mist of the Eden Valley. And it was just... Spellbinding. A, ama- amazing. And, yes. then, and then we walked back that day. So that is a very, very special occasion, and I treasure it. I Are treasure you? that memory.
3: So the section from Middleton in Teesdale. When you're walking along the river, you've got that beautiful series of waterfalls. Along sections, of the, there were plunge pools as well, kind of running parallel to the flow of the river. And we just used to strip off and dive in them and swim to the bottom and retrieve walking boots that somebody might have lost the previous summer. And uh, 50 pence pieces. I remember finding a 50 pence piece in the bottom of one. Beyond high force... 'cause you've got cauldron snout. If if you can have an earthy waterfall, cauldron snout's an earthy waterfall, isn't it? It's um, it's just such a chaotic jumble. It's a delight.
1: It's a scramble as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. the only proper scramble on the whole route. <laughs> what I remember from there is is walking up across the more that gentle incline towards High Cup and we had the thump of the artillery on the firing range over to our left. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we arrived at High Cup. Now I'd never been there before in my life. And if I would advise anybody listening to the podcast, actually, if you're going to visit High Cup, do that. Come at it from the east across the moors because the ground suddenly falls away at your feet and you've got this beautiful U-shaped valley. And I can still remember being there. I can still picture it now. There were just little clouds coming up the bottom of the valley and then racing up the cliff at the top and rising in front of us. And we were looking out across the Eden Valley uh, towards the Lake District And we could see RAF jets flying along that valley, you know, below our height, below where we were. And what it reminded me of the time, and I've written about this in the magazine, um, was was, uh, a little bit of uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where they're standing on a cliff and looking out across Narnia with Aslan the Lion and looking out across basically everything, all creation. And it felt like that. It was uh, was just mind-blowing.
1: Well, Andrew, we've just come to what's known as the Nick... And we're looking straight down the great U-shaped glaciated valley. Imagine the great body of ice that once sat in there. It's enormous. It's because of the dollarite, the wind sill that you'll encounter uh, on Hadrian's Wall, that's exactly what you see here. There's great swathes of stone scree, great curtains run down that valley. see the silvery water half a mile away suddenly appearing. What do you think Pennine Waywalkers feel when they come here?
2: Well, you've walked across from Teesdale on a relatively level route uh, and you're going across fairly flat moorland and nothing quite prepares you heading west to, to Dufton for what's at your feet. It's suddenly revealed and it's one of those Pennine Way impact moments when you stand, say, at the top of Tarn, or you get to the summit Cross Fell. Here in High Cup the land falls away below you and it's a jaw dropper and I've stood here several times watching walkers come up, Pennine Way walkers come up, who just stand open-mouthed at the view and this is a Pennine Way moment.
0: There we go, so that's three separate clips all talking about the Pennine Way and specifically that section between Middleton and Teesdale and Dufton which to my mind is if not the best walk in the country one of them john
5: well
3: i'd agree wholeheartedly you know that's uh, uh one of those defining moments of my walking life and career if you if you like that um, uh, set me up for, for for where i went in later years you heard it in the recording there i can still remember being stood at the edge uh, of high cup and looking down across the eden valley and everything and uh, it still blows my mind it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck rise up it's uh, yeah wonderful
1: I'm, I'm so glad that uh, Andrew and Kate agree <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, it's interesting uh, people when they leave Teasdale probably will have been told that actually high cut will surprise you but you can't prepare yourself for yeah. that yeah, people yeah. can climb Lakeland mountains so they can go up cat belts let's say uh, they're in the setting already. They get to the top. It's all there before them, but it's just a little another elevation on what they've already seen. They can climb Schofield Pike. Again, they're in the same setting. But when you come across the moorlands, and it's, it's quite a long moorland stretch, you feel. That's it, isn't it? There's, there's a great bleak, bleakness, bleakness to it. Because it's so expansive. There was a g- great feeling of the moors rising away and the mm. mists rising up. And so you could see great distances. But then suddenly... The land drop beneath your feet like a trapdoor. Yeah. Boom! And it does seem everybody who walks that bit of the Penang Way gets that same sensation. Unless of course it's the thick fog. But even even in the thick fog, I mean that hides that mm. hides it properly.
3: So it's the ground
1: still falls away
3: at your feet. Yes. you know? <laughs> You just gotta be careful not to fall <laughs> with it, I suppose, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're gonna have another if you all choices now, Mark, and we're not straying too far, either from the Pennine Way or indeed from Engleton here. We're going to Dentdale, that loveliest of valleys, and we're in the company of Colin Speakman, the father of the Dales Way. So let's listen to Colin as we climb down into Dentdale.
1: It's a fabulous outlook we've got here, Colin, right at the beginning of the walk as we come out of the station... And on a day like today, which is, is a breeze and dappled fell sides, but you've got a great perspective on what is all about. And I can look up to my left, up and see the upper part of the valley, where the Dales Way comes from Cam, uh, where it crosses from, from Ribble Head. And you can see Bleemore, um, the hill over Head, there. Yeah. And just over topping the hill next to the right, uh, directly ahead of us, we can see Wernside. The and Queen. further on, more t- directly down the valley, you're looking to Gregareth, and, with the yeah, sun on yeah, it yeah. and uh, Crag, yeah. Hill, Crag
5: Hill. Yeah.
1: And further on round, Calf Top on the Middleton Fells. Yeah, off the
5: other side of the Dent Fault, which is quite interesting because geologically that's in, in the Lake District. You're looking at the ancient Silurian rocks of the lakes, as opposed to the slightly younger Carboniferous. Limestones and gritstones of the Yorkshire Dales. So it's a kind of division. Dendale's quite t- different from most of the Yorkshire Dales and it goes right back to when the valley was settled in sort of um, early medieval times because this is a typical Viking settlement and I'm told by one or two experts that the field patterns and the settlements is much more likely of the kind that you find in Scandinavia and even in Iceland. So there's only one largest settlement in the whole of the valley and that's Dent, Dent Town as you must call it. Mm -hmm. Um, Everywhere else is small, either hamlets or just scattered farms and they're very long and narrow and every yeoman farmer it was a very democratic kind of system here that everybody owned their own land at one time it's all changed now of course mm-hmm. and as well as a farm you owned a narrow strip of bottom land and a narrow strip of fell and you can see these long linear fields going right up the hillside now marked by little lines of beautiful woodland that we're looking at at the moment there's a lovely description of this Dale by an 18th century agricultural economist mm-hmm. who came up to the area and took one look at this view we're looking at from here and talked about density Dale at the end of the 18th century as being a kind of terrestrial paradise. Mm. one of the most beautiful places on earth he'd ever seen and he put this in his official rather dry report Mm -hmm. so at that time it really was a kind of golden period but then it was all rapidly changing and even today you know you can see what was and what now is because obviously it's a very very different economy in the area and a very different kind of valley but you know in a way we're looking at the kind of ghosts uh, of a former way of uh, uh, ways of life which is still there And okay the people may live there now maybe prosperous communities or second home owners and there's still a few farmers but nothing like the number you know but you look at the landscape and it still has the remains of that quite remarkable period so in a way we're looking at a historic cultural landscape image of the past that is so important for us because it's where we all came from because most of us have a rural past don't we we? do a story go back you know three four generations and we came from places like Dendale
0: Lovely description there of Dentdale as a terrestrial paradise. And that was one of the first times I'd been to Dentdale on that podcast. For me, one of the hidden gems of Cumbria.
3: I'd go back to the, the time when we walked the Dales Way with with my friend uh, Mick Chatham, who was a countryside ranger in the South Pennines. Uh, and, and that stretch along, along the river in Dentdale was, to us, probably the finest part of the whole walk you know you've got the little burbling river over the limestone yellow wagtails gray wagtails heron dipper it was everything was so rich and luxurious it must have been the height of summer when all the trees and foliage were at the at the best and loads of wild flies out and yeah that stretch is just uh, mind-blowingly beautiful Yeah,
1: the the D, um, which means the Dark River. And there's a little deep dale that runs into it as well, isn't there, lower down? You get towards Dent Town. Uh, But there are some majestic valleys that I love. Uh, uh, That's one because I feel a great identity with that setting and the Howgill's near. You move into the Rorthy and uh, into the Loon Valley. Gorgeous valleys. The Lake District has some remarkable valleys that I adore. Uh, I, I've always got a great soft feeling for Great Langdale because that was the place I first explored But when I first right. came to the mountains. Uh, and then I ultimately discovered Eskdale, Upper Eskdale. In mm-hmm. fact, all the way from the sea, all the way up the Esk, is a remarkable
3: experience. That's one of the finest valleys in the whole country. It's just... Uh, oh. the, 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 its upper reaches, they're just so wild that... Oh. Um,
0: this is great moss, isn't it? And that yeah, huge moss. cauldron yeah. below all of the crags of the High Fells. The also.
3: crags that just erupt from the ground in front oh, yeah. of you as
1: you're wandering up. and There's one reminds
3: me of the Giant's Grand Piano or something. It's probably got its own name. Oh, yeah.
1: oh that's Esk um, Buttress, I think. That one. Right. Uh, the, uh, uh, the south ridge of Esk Pike, of course, has got etched Stones there yeah. from Neolithic origin. So it probably their place had a great resonance going way back three or four five thousand years. People came there and revered that place, and it was probably because of those mountains.
0: So, for you then, Mark, Great Langdale and Upper Estelle, there on your your favourite valleys. Very list. much so. What, what about you, John? Uh,
3: for me, um, the Hebden Valley in mm. West Yorkshire, um, which uh, winds its way down towards Hebden Bridge. Um, most people know it as Castle Crags when I was in my uh, mid-twenties. My, my best years were devoted to uh, spending time up there with um, the National Trust. I was a, a National Trust volunteer. Mm. But the valley itself comes down through the gritstones and the sandstones. and There are lovely pine-clad rock outcrops in mm. there. And the river itself, it's this, the brown waters, like you were talking about mm. in, in the deep. Davy tumbles its way down through all this absolutely they, they call it little switzerland
1: and for good reason it's mm. it has that alpine feel it's ab- yeah. absolutely beautiful as editor of lakeland walker have you got a lakeland valley that has a similar sort of feel for you
3: well langdale itself is probably one of my one of my favorites uh, as it is with you um mm. and that's very different of course because it doesn't have all that tree cover up in its upper reaches it's not long escaped the era of creation, you know, you yeah. can still see the, the glacial valley. drumlins and things like that. And glacial drumlins, just, to me, just, they blow my mind. The fact that you can still see such clear evidence. It's like finding dinosaur poo. It's glacier poo, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Langdale it's, it's Coombe. beautiful.
1: Uh, Harrison Coombe and Langdale Coombe, right at the heads of these valleys there. Yeah. Great mounds of uh, glacial debris. Yeah. The, the yeah. Glaciers just left last year, almost. Yeah.
3: And you can see it in the Cairngorms as well, coming down uh, from the Fords of Arne down Glen Arne. There are some landscapes which are just completely, utterly made of drumlins, silvery watercourses slipping through them, and it takes you back tens of thousands of years. doesn't it? It's just just mind-blowing.
0: We're going to switch now to something rather different. We're heading to the high fells of Lakeland with David Powell-Thompson, with who we climbed the high style range, Mark, back in February. (laughs) <laughs> very, very cold, very, very windy.
1: Very, very steep, I would imagine. Very, very <laughs> amazing that we recorded it at all.
0: <laughs> yes, we did. We struggled through it. And my hands were absolutely freezing up there. So we'll listen now to a couple of memories of bygone days walking the fells from David.
1: Earliest lakes memory.
0: That would
6: be as a, a young child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the abiding memories is the Browns bus from Ambleside to Hawke's Head. It had a big fin on the back of it. And, uh, and it used to have its own atmosphere inside it because all the walkers will be wet through and, you know, inappropriate clothing. Well, it was all pack and rainmates in those days. Cloudy and steamy. <laughs> I, remember, I remember things like that. It's Just, lovely. Yeah. Man.
1: Have you got one day that you can remember that you say, that was extra special?
6: It probably goes back to the time my father took me up Helvellyn and we got to the top um, 3,118 feet. And my father picked me up and he plonked me on top of the trig point. I was 3,121 feet above sea level. I must have been seven or eight at the time. And that is an abiding memory, being stood on the top of that.
1: Well, that's a remarkable memory. I I love it to bits.
0: David Powell Thompson there, and I love his description of the bus having its own atmosphere. But him standing on the top of the Helvellyn trig point, which is still there, still standing strong up there, isn't it? Three or four feet high. Lovely. This is the encapsulation of a memory that has stuck with him his entire life.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the whole place is made of memory. The whole the whole outdoor experience is is made of memories, isn't it? One thing that uh, Bill Mitchell, the late, great Bill Mitchell, who used to edit the Dalesman, uh, told me when I went to work for that company, he said, never forget, it's it's always about the people. It's not really about the landscape. It's, it's about the people and what it means to them, what their memories are. We try to evoke elements of that in the magazine. You know, we publish readers' photographs. They'll mm. send in photographs of themselves at trig points and summit cairns and...
0: That, to me, is communicating some of the joy that these memories are made of. One of the things that struck me about one of our earliest episodes when we climbed Scarfell Pike, we chatted to a lot of the people on the top. Invariably, there were a lot of families there, uh, kids of different ages, and it did strike me that mountains and these kind of long walks give families a chance to experience something together that is really quite hard to get in In this modern you know, quite fast-paced life. Yes. And the kids weren't looking too bored. No. <laughs> weren't looking too bored, I mean, it.
1: They'd had to work hard to get there. They did it all as a group. Uh They, they had a shared turmoil to get there. It was an effort. Uh, and they get to the top, they're able to relax and say, wow, it mm-hmm. was worth it. And we're still all together. And everybody's eating their sandwiches, having their drinks, having their bars of chocolates. Everybody's in a happy state of mind. Some would sit quietly to one side, but but a lot we noticed, they're in in a very convivial state of Mm. mind. (laughs) Like The cemetery of Scarfell Pike now has got this great memorial which has been reconstructed and people gather and cuddle one another in great numbers It gets clogged up with people It goes back to that rite of passage, doesn't it? Pennine Way for an
3: Englishman Scarfell Pike for an Englishman
0: I've never been cuddled on the top of Scarfell Pike so I feel like I'm missing out, Mark Maybe next time we go up Maybe (laughs) we should all go up Scarfell Pike A big cuddle Give David a cuddle
1: I (laughs) cuddle
0: (laughs) I would like that Right, so we're now moving on to a little collage of clips, one choice from you, Mark, and one from me, and we're starting with Vicky Slow, who we walked around the north end of Coniston with, talking about John Ruskin Mm. and his legacy.
1: Fascinating man.
0: And we're moving on to one of our most recent podcasts, and we're walking with the Cumbria Wildlife Trust's Jamie Normington, in the woods of Rhea, and we're talking about lost words.
7: You've got oak, you've got sloes, you've got quite a lot of different flowers in here. There was some hawthorn, I can't see any just mm. at the moment. There's honeysuckle in it, yeah. mountain ash, rowan, blackberries in it as well. As
1: birds come along, they drop the seeds over a period of time. Yeah,
7: and, then... and, and, and there's vetch and there's tormental as well as the buttercups. The story is that when Ruskin was out walking... And exploring the area, if he met some of the local children whom he knew from the school, he would um, particularly give the girls a quiz about the wildflowers because he'd been teaching them the country names, you know, like Milkmaid and Buttercup and all the rest of it. And then started more ambitiously to teach them the Latin names, so they get a quiz. And if, if they did well, they would end up with, you know, a penny or two. Buy yourself a little treat.
1: I mentioned about dippers as being dukas. What other lost words are they, you know? Well, the, the, the big one, especially in this particular place, there would be two. I'd probably focus on heron,
3: but heron and kingfisher. Great riverside birds. And, and heron becomes really interesting to me because they've been around for so, so long. They've got incredible historical connections. Mm-hmm. And um, I was speaking to someone in, in South Cumbria around herons, mm-hmm. at which point they said, um, we know them as jammy cranes. Yeah. And, and there, was a, there was a confusion between what's a crane and what's a heron. And it was yeah. interchangeable. As cranes started to become extinct here and hunted out, I guess, um, they became all one. Wow. Uh, and actually, the farm nearest Timmy has a jammy meadow, which sounds marvelous, doesn't it? But yeah. the jammy meadow is actually the herons' meadow. Right. And there are still herons living there in the dead trees along the, the waterlogged field. Um, the herons still thrive. So it's interesting to me that the herons give their name to the place, yes. but then it becomes lost as a jammy crane and people yes. don't know what that is and a jammy meadow.
0: Jamie Normington there walking with us through rear woods and talking about the jammy crane. And in both of those podcasts we talked about these lost words and heritage vernacular bringing up all these these words that also infuse into place names they which are. I think is fascinating isn't it?
1: Absolutely fascinating. If people see Heron Pike above mm. Rydal and they think, oh there's a heron there. Oh yeah, yeah. But because actually it's comes from ern. Ern is a sea eagle. Mm. So Heron pike is actually a development on the name urn words evolve all the time like that because every generation come up with a new vocabulary for things and they may adopt an earlier word but they don't understand it so they will give it a new meaning
0: i love this thought about ruskin going through the back lanes around coniston and he was giving out these little gifts wasn't he to the local kids for getting the names the local names correct for the wildlife and in that way, I quite like the link between both of those clips because this Lost Words project that Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris are leading, these are concerns that are very now, but they were Ruskin's concerns. Even back then, he was worried that the local kids were losing connection with the heritage terms for the wildlife around them. And, and all that that meant in terms of losing that connection with landscape and nature.
1: Uh, observing. You, he wanted to cultivate this act of observing, mm. being, being alert to things, and uh, knowing the wildlife around you, the plants and the animals, uh, are a way of being rooted to a place.
0: Cumbria has such a rich vernacular even down to individual towns and villages having own specific words for, for wildlife in particular, but also kind of farming uh-huh. terms. Uh-huh. Some of my favourites, so these are from the Dickinson uh, Dictionary. Flecky Flocker, that's a chaffinch. <laughs> uh, peggy White Throat, that's the willow wren. Uh, and then a shill apple, that's the missile thrush. Just beautiful words mm, and I yeah. think that's I mean that's something that Jamie was celebrating wasn't it it's how do you get kids engage with this wildlife that is being literally written out of the dictionary
3: mm, quite well the clip was playing there we discussed the uh the, the use of the word around here uh, wind hover mm-hmm. which is a word for kestrel wind hover is a much more descriptive word than kestrel. I mean, yeah. kestrel's probably got a, a meaning in, in, in some ancient tongue yes. that's that's lost to me, wind hover. Um, I, re- I remember uh, walking on the on the Yorkshire coast once and seeing a kestrel hovering over the cliff mm-hmm. uh, in a buffeting wind, and it was being thrown about all over the place, but its head never moved. Its head was as solid as a rock, yes. steady, while it was watching the ground looking for a... I think it was chasing butterflies and moths for its launch, and, and Windhover just suited that absolutely perfectly.
1: Another example of that in the context of the Lake District is Glade, which is glide, and that is the Red uh. Kite. Red Kite is glide or glade. Uh, on Buckbarrow, above on yeah. Talon, there's a Glade Howe, the resting place of the Red Kite.
3: So the fact that they're now being reintroduced and having a, a wonderful success with it is... Um Bringing that old place name back to yeah, me. That, and giving that it, giving it a yeah, that Viking name has come
0: back. One of the joys of going out, Mark, that I've found from the past year has been the unexpected wildlife we've come across. Mm. Um, so, we have to kind of seabirds, uh, St Bee's Head, which you'd expect. But in two separate podcasts, we came across deer. So, in the first clip, we're walking with 17-year-old campaigner Amy Bray along the flanks of Biederfell. And in the second, we're in the north of the county on the Solway salt marshes with Anne Lingard. And in both of these, we're interrupted by distant sights of wildlife.
1: It's a lovely plod up here, isn't it, Amy? We've got a great view of Bannerdale here. You can see Rest Dodd and Satura Crag. And behind that skyline, Wainwright's coast-to-coast marches hither and thither. And uh, you just see a bit of Ramskill Head over the little coal between the Nab and Rest Dog. Now, the Lake District this has had a tremendous impact on your life. When did your family come up here first as a family holiday?
8: Um, I think it was a few weeks after I was born, actually. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were very alert then.
8: <laughs> yeah. Yes, but I'm sure that I fell in love with it then. Um, I think you know I've been playing in the streams, fishing in the, in the becks for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, and I, I fell in love with wild swimming. So I would always be in the coldest towns when people <laughs> thought I was mad.
1: Fabulous! Have, have you swum in Angle Tarn? Was that still a waiting? To...
8: I have, yes. Yeah, I took, I took my friend up there once, and we, we had a swim in it when it was very cold. And I actually, <laughs> I went up there in the, in the pouring rain and fog, and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. <laughs> Did you see any fish in
1: there? You
8: probably didn't. Um, not in Angle Tarn, no. Um, but. Easdale Town is actually one of my favourite towns oh, for yes. fish. You can see loads of little little colourful fish. In there. Fabulous. I have memories sewn into places all around the lakes and it's so beautiful to come back and visit those and, and tell my new friends about them. Are there any
1: particular parts of the lake dish that you find really spellbinding?
8: I think Hindscarf is one of my favourite mountains. I love the ridge walk down into Newlands Valley. Fabulous,
1: yes. Um, well, because um, Hindscarf relates to deer and if we peel our eyes into the bottom of Bannerdale here we might... You never know, we might see them, but they do tend to secrete themselves in the neighbouring one, Rampskill, but I have seen them down directly below us in times past. I don't know if we can see them now. Oh, crikey me, now I mention it, I can just
8: see
1: them. Oh yes, there they are. Yeah, this is their domain, this is where they belong. It's wonderful, that's why the path coming up the slope as it does, insulates them a little. Is that them
0: there?
8: Off on the fell side, there's a herd of them there. Can you see?
1: 30 yeah. or 40 of them,
7: I say, so, yeah?
8: Yeah. Not no. very close, that you can see them.
7: We're standing almost at the top of Rogerscuff Drumlin, and it's all green round us now, and you can see that they're obviously digging out some more um, pools to stop water flow. But we're looking down onto the uh, Bonus Moss Common now, aren't we? And you can see this lovely sort of oaken brown, and... Uh, over to the north is a line of woodland which is proper bog woodland which mm-hmm. seems to be self seeded. Oh, look, and above us there's what's that? Is that a buzzard flying over us?
1: Well, that's yeah. sharp eyed. Indeed, yes. it is.
7: And the thing I just saw, you mentioned the line of the railway track, you can just oh. see this line of dead birches heading up north towards the Solway. And I just saw the brown shape, I can still see it. You see, there's a tree down there, and if if you look above it, there's a brown shape and a white bottom, and it's a deer just ambling along by the line of the track there. Isn't that Amazing. fantastic? You've got sharp just... eyes at
1: It's a roe deer. <laughs> yes, it's Absolutely a Absolutely love it.
0: So there's Amy Bray spotting the Martindale deer herd and Anne Lingard looking over the moss. And I have to say, Mark, I hadn't been to the Solway marshes before. What a great part of the county that was! Oh, indeed. So the RSPB on the Benes Common are making
1: giant strides to reflood areas, mm. and net effect is bringing in more wildlife mm. or native wood wildlife that has suffered uh, of recent with fertilisers and so on. <clears throat> so it is getting a much greater diversity there, and that will have repercussions
0: elsewhere. So that was one of several examples this year, Mark, where we've walked with people who are doing local conservation projects to try and bring about more biodiversity. Uh, John, I'm interested in, as editor of Lakeland Walker, you're you're talking to people who spend an awful lot of time out among these great landscapes and who value the beauty of particularly the Lakeland fells. But actually the biodiversity of the fells is often... Not particularly it's, impressive.
3: I, I sometimes I'm am amazed at how when I'm out on a fell top, how little bird life there is. You know, impoverished um, in many respects. Yes, yeah. and I, I wonder if the walking community are in part at least responsible for that. We're up there day in, day out. You know, there's dogs running all over the place. How you know? We, there, there's, there's so many different reasons: uh, big industry, all that. Why wildlife is in decline at the moment? But I think walkers have to accept that. To a degree, they're a part of that. Um, not just the disturbance of the wildlife on the fell top, but even down to the the gear we use. Nin- 99% of outdoor gear is a petroleum byproduct, you know, nylon gear, polyester gear, uh, plastic in your walking boots, plastic buckles on your ruck straps. It's all come from this great big polluting. Fossil fuel industry at the root of it, and we we do need to ad- address that as part of the much bigger picture uh, in lakeland walker we've we've stopped doing the comparative gear reviews. Um, the best gear that anybody can use on the fells is the gear they already use. Our mm. columnist Charles Ross repeats that mantra repeatedly. So many people are, are, are tempted by marketing experts and what have you to buy this year's colour. Mm. Uh, to buy the latest developments in gear when actually most of the gear you've got is perfectly functional. You can lob it in the tumble dryer on a low heat and restore its waterproof qualities. Not many people even think of doing that. They go, oh, my waterproof it's starting to wet out a bit. I think I'll treat myself to a new one. Mm. I've had it five years now. Well, it'll last another five years. We trying to get that message across in Lakeland Walker. I don't know whether we're cutting our own throats in doing so. Maybe the advertisers aren't too impressed by that. That said, again, the outdoor industry is one that is very, very conscious of its of its impact and is doing its very best uh, to to change that. There are biodegradable synthetic fills coming out. Theoretically, you can pop them in the compost heap when when your jacket's done and dusted. And if if, if an entire jacket is made from biodegradable type of plastic, for want of a better word then theoretically, when that jacket has reached its absolute end
0: of useful life, you should be able to compost it. And you could then put it into the allotment and get jacket potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom. Hey, that was mine, David. You have taught taught him well, man. I
1: have, yeah. Uh, Sarah Hadcroft established uh, Gift Your Gear as an example of trying to recycle What Sarah's done
3: is wonderful, yes. There's a a lot of uh, charity groups in this area that have benefited from that people take what they consider to be worn out gear into um, a collection area which is usually one of the Rohan shops Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah and her husband Paul of course founded Rohan many years ago Uh, and Sarah collects it all into a Mm. central place they sort it out into what's usable what's repairable what's what and then they Gift it to groups that are taking youngsters out into the fells, so it gets mm. a, a new lease of life. Mm. And what's that organisation called? It's called Gift Your Gear. Gift Your Gear. Very That's simple. You can find funny. it on uh, online very easily.
0: Sometimes one can forget the absolutely fantastic large valley scale work that is going on um, in the lakes, places like Hard Knot Forest, which I know you've covered uh, on some of your pieces, John. Yeah. Um, huge amount of native replanting going on up there. And you can see already the effects of that just a decade in. I think they've been going a little over a decade now, but it's full of the missing birdsong, you know, and it doesn't take that long for it to come back. Mm. Just up the wharf from here-ish, you've got Outer Shore Moss, where, I mean, that is a huge transformative project in... What some people would call rewilding and what others would call biodiversity, uh, recreation and flood defence, of course. You know, and these are matters that actually over the past 12 months have come into sharp focus. Yeah,
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, undoubtedly. And you can see how it's occurring all over the country. But where you've got wild country, you've got far more opportunity to develop these things because it's been impoverished by monoculture, a different kind of monoculture than what you've got in lowland England and Britain, but that can be recovered. Yeah, I love the way in some
3: areas that they're using wildlife to help do some of that restoration, the reintroduction of beavers in certain places mm. um, as part of flood defence work, essentially,
5: Yes, is mm. magical.
3: Um, I would I would love to see beavers, maybe there are some, maybe we haven't been told, in, in Ennerdale, which is another habitat restoration a, project which is wonderful there's a
1: little village not far from here called barbon which meets the beavers valley mm. these are the magical things in place names they tell you a little bit what was going on five or six hundred
0: years ago yeah yeah marvelous more of the natural world now in our next clip and from the bleak midwinter we're going to the hope of spring as we emerge into an absolutely beautiful bluebell woods uh, so this is you john this is us in Bridge Woods on part of the Pennine journey. I remember it well. Here we go. It's
1: a remarkable moment here. We've come out to the plateau, uh, having just entered Flakebridge Woods, and the floor is blanketed. These are bluebells, and they just, with the dappling of the shadows from the oak trees, what do you think it is about bluebells, John, that really transcends them and gives them such an impact? When you see a bluebell wood from afar, it just glows, doesn't it? How often, though, do
3: we come across blue in nature? There's not a lot of examples, is there? No. I mean, you... Forget-me-not. Yeah. But to, to see not swathes of it like this.
1: Acres of it.
3: I wonder if, as well, I mean, bluebells are a woodland plant and, you're, you know, a deciduous woodland, broadleaf, Native woodland. We don't have enough of that left. Yes. And maybe there's some trace memory of, you know, going back thousands of years How through the we... generations about...
1: We you know, are maybe... backwoodsmen at heart.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Farrowman. A message of home as well. Home uh, and hope because spring has really taken root mm. and before the bracken smothers it and it's lost... The bracken's already pointing its head out There's no not a breath of wind. I can hear a distant aeroplane. Chip chaff. Chip chaff.
0: There we go, that's the three of us in Flakebridge Woods. I thought that was a fabulous walk.
3: It was a beautiful day, beautiful
0: day. Mm.
3: A great azure quite, on the ground. Quite possibly the slowest four or five miles we've ever done in our yes, lives. That's right. So. That's right
1: yeah. <laughs> we've developed the art on countryside. We can have an enormous walk, which lasts five hours. And we can do a very tiny walk, which lasts for five hours.
0: <laughs> but that was particularly crazy, wasn't it? I mean, that was only, what, three and a half miles? And we got into <laughs>
1: Appleby
0: at Apple, kind of five o'clock in the evening yeah. after starting at breakfast time in, in Dufton. You
1: talk too much, John.
0: <laughs> that ended up being one of my favourite walks of the year, partly because... I didn't know about the bluebells there i mean that was a real eye-opener to me cumbria not blessed with ancient woodland um but that was absolutely spectacular the weather was fabulous the wildlife was wonderful the views of the pennines dot 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 let's move on to you john walking highlights of the year have you had any walks this year that have been extra special
3: Um, well probably uh, one of my most recent ones um a little bit of a you need a bit of background though to put it in context As you know, my my work situation changed significantly recently. Um, And in the run-up to that, I was promising myself that my first day out of the office, I would take myself off to the fells. And the way things turned out, um, that didn't happen. Um, So I was getting more and more pent up and frustrated in the house, uh, working from home, and my pal Robert knocked on the door one morning and said let's go for a walk brilliant uh, (laughs) that's what friends are all (laughs) about yeah yeah and there was there was just uh, no way of saying no Uh, and his his idea initially was to go and walk out a route from Kirby Stephen that he was going to be leading for the Lakeland LDWA on the AGM day but uh, the weather was rather good and so I thought no let's uh, let's go into the fells let's do something high up and make the most of it and we thought we'd park up at Ambleside, And then we thought, no, the weather's better than that. Let's keep going. <laughs> and we went to we went and parked up at the ODG there and uh, walked up to along the valley side and up to the town, up onto Sergeant Mann and across the plateau. And uh, all these stresses that had been building up with the changes in work circumstances, they just dissipated, they just... ...evaporated... That's and that,
1: landscape I, does that to you. Yeah,
3: you suddenly feel as though, oh my God, I'm, I'm back in my element. Life isn't so stressful after all, you know. These these places still exist. That's one of the things we must never forget, actually, that these places, that's why they exist, that's why they're so important, because
1: mm-hmm.
3: they have this quality, they have this ability to...
1: Lift our spirits. Lift your spirits, And, yeah. and become yeah. who you really are.
3: Yeah, and that day was just magical. You know, clear blue skies just on the cusp of winter, so it was nice and fresh mm. and cold.
0: And, uh, and so what what were your favourite walks of the year, Mark?
1: Oh, I've got great ones. Uh, I,
0: Pick just two.
1: Yeah, well, yes, uh, two. Well, I, I remember rather like Amy Bray was who, who liked going up for Hindscarf, uh, going up for Scope End, onto uh, Hindscarf and over Robinson and then over Arb Crags and um Notrig. Great little expedition from uh, Littletown. Uh, another one, Codale Horseshoe. What a fabulous one oh, yes. from Braithwaite. Yeah. Never-ending pleasure, that is. It's a, it's a kind of tumble of summits,
3: and they're all knotted together yes. and strung together. You, it's you just get, gorgeous.
1: You get to uh, Corsi Pike, mm. and you either plummet off the end, <laughs> and I don't want to do that. So I backtracked uh, and went to Outer Side and uh, Style End and Barrow. And the whole thing glued together brilliantly. I actually walked with a friend on that one, uh, Adrian, and it, it, he loved it to bits.
0: Well, my favourite from this year, and it actually ended right here in Ingleton, uh, was day something like 14 of the Pennine journey. Very long leg, started in Sedba, went up Dentdale, over Wurnside, along Twizzleton scar, and then finished doing... What you call the waterfall walk here yes. in Ingleton. This was totally new territory. Every step of the way, I'd done none of it. You know, you get those walks sometimes where every step is fabulous. They're so rare those kind of walks because there's always a bit of filler normally, and yeah. that's fine. I love the filler too. But that particular one, you got the Dentdale walk, which you described so beautifully early on, John. And I mean, for me, it was the same. It was May May time, so you had the swallows, you had that absolute vibrant green and it is a valley that looks like somebody who's curated the beauty in a way that I think is exceptional both in the Yorkshire Dales and in Cumbria and then onto one side with all the views that that entails and twizzleton Scar wow now in Cumbria and particularly in the lakes we don't get limestone scenery like that and that's one of the landscapes that I absolutely love the light was on Ingleborough late afternoon light the limestone pavement was glowing in the way that only that kind of rock can do, and we are here actually today. We're in the heart of that kind of country, yeah, aren't funnily we? funnily
3: enough, Twistleton Scar was where, again, when I've been out for a, a walk with my good friend Robert, as we were coming across Twistleton Scar uh, at dusk, Short-eared Owl flew across that pass. It just it just signifies that you're in such a wild place that these creatures can still yeah. thrive and survive, and um, it's like something coming to. To, to give you a message from another dimension. It's just yes. pure
1: beauty. Twistleton, of course, means the farm at the meeting of the streams. The farm at the meeting. Meeting of the streams. Rather like Holtwistle. Right. means the same sort of right. meaning.
0: Twistle means a meeting. Uh, now for something totally different for our next clip. We're in the company of Terry Abraham. And Terry's talking about his spiritual connection with the fells. Right, Terry, we've
1: made it up onto the first stretch of the valley. There's a flock of Swaledales or
9: swaddles, being fed down there. Aye. You've got a great view here. Yeah, yeah, it's nice, some nice light about it at a minute, actually. It's making me think, hmm, I might have to get the bloody cameras out. But, <laughs> Can't uh, be having that. No, well, it's, it's quite a bit of clag about today. I'm intrigued by your passion for mountains. What drew you in the first instance? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in the country... My grandfather had a very profound influence on my life with him having a farm and having some woodland as well. I used to go beating and go out on shoots with him and he'd take me bushcrafting and spending nights out in the woods. So that sort of connection with the landscape's always been there for me. Um, My grandmother, she had um, a profound influence on me as well because she had a love for history and heritage and culture and people and so she'd often take me to museums and whatnot and Force feed me to read encyclopedias, so I'm a bit of a brain box for things like that. I'm handy in a pub quiz. (laughs) But um, so I think you know, you combine those two things, and that's what led me to come up with the idea of doing the life of a mountain documentaries, you know, sharing that interest and passion with places and people and all the connections in between. Grandparents sadly died when I was doing my A levels, and looking back in retrospect, I, I went through a phase of depression from that. It really got me quite down, and I lost my way a bit. Yeah, so it was basically a health scare I had in my late 20s, met my wife, it reignited my passion for the Lake District, having come here for the first time when I was 13, and um, sort of got passionate, taking a camcorder out of me on wild camps and stuff, and I built quite a following online through that, and then I got made redundant, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this video malarkey a go full time, and I'm not professionally trained. You know, I've always had an interest in film and video and obviously the outdoors, but um, it's been a learning curve since, but I've not looked back, you know. Christ, I would changed this for the world now.
1: Clearly not. And, and Sue, your wife, has been a, a great bulwark to you. And she, you say she had a passion for the Lake District?
9: Yeah, 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 she does, but not, not in the same way as me, no. perhaps. You know, yeah. I like to spend nights out on the fells. She wants to spend the night at home in bed after being out in amongst <laughs> the fells, you know, that kind well. of thing. I often joke I'm a wild camper first and foremost, and then a you know, filmmaker and photographer second and third. And for me, there's no better way than enjoying these landscapes, the beautiful fells of Lakeland, by spending so much time out amongst them. Um, and that includes wild camping. Some people might find me a bit of a lunatic at times, when I do it in the heights of winter, during storms and stuff, but I, I like that. It makes you feel alive. It gives you a real sense of appreciation of your place in the world, the landscape, all all those things I'm a practicing atheist to be honest with you Mark Mm. but I can acknowledge now as the last few years have gone by when we're working on these documentaries that there's no denying I'm probably a bit of a spiritualist you know I have a spiritual connection with these places I care passionately about these places and like to share the the drama the scenes the people I meet and so on and so forth through the documentaries and hopefully give them a, a greater appreciation of the area because it's not just about Hill bagging ticking off hills and being out on the summits you know some of the best views can be found on the you know the lesser height
0: summits if you like um, and it 's about the people the culture and the heritage you know that was Terry Abraham there, the filmmaker talking about this connection that he has uh, with the high fells and john you 've been doing some work with Terry recently
3: uh, yes we've been uh, having a lot of meetings and conversations and um, trying to find out more about the The man, actually, and I I have to say that my admiration for him was was already high because of his films, but learning more about his background, his drive, his goal, his determination, I'm blown away. He's he's a very, very special person. Cares passionately for the Lake District, Mm. uh, and he cares passionately about what happens in the Lake District and what's being done in the Lake District. He's very resolute. He's he's not wavering in what he does and what
1: what he says about um, the Lake District. He mm. doesn't comply with certain norms that are being sort of imposed from other sources. I think he eyes with
3: disdain those who see the Lake District purely. As a, as a cash cow. cow. A cash cow, yes.
0: Mm. Yeah. He's got so much material for this film. I wonder <laughs> how long it's going to be. But uh, it's, I suppose it's, we shall see in May. It's quite
3: fascinating <laughs> listening to him talking about the way he's edited. He'll have a sequence uh, finalised with the soundtrack and then he'll be going through some old Clips that he shot maybe last summer, and he'll go. Oh, this will better in there. So he's shuffling, he's still shuffling stuff around. Um, yeah. and we'll look forward to the director's
1: cut, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll look, certainly look. But he to says, it.
3: you know, it's the last, it's the last film in his trilogy, and he wants, he wants it to be the best. And he's,
0: you know, Terry is very blunt. He says it as it is, like you say, and uh, he says this is going to be the best. I, I believe him. OK, we're coming to another of your choices now, Mark. Uh, and this will be our, our last clip before we hear Alfred Wainwright. This is going back to Kate Ashbrook, who um, you walked along Malastang and down into the Eden Valley with. And she's talking about access. So we're returning a little bit to the first clip that you picked today. Here's Kate.
4: 20 years ago, we revived the Freedom to Rome campaign um, which had been something that we've always wanted to have freedom to roam on open country. The 1949 National Parks Act was completely hopeless. It didn't give us that right. It just said that local authorities could make access agreements where access was challenged. None of them did. And so we, we were getting nowhere with that. And then 20 years ago, a very brilliant member of staff at the Ramblers, David Beskin, kind of revived the campaign. And um, a group of us spent a lot of time drafting legislation... But it wasn't until we got a Labour government that we had a hope of implementing it because, you know, it was only Labour who who really supported it. But when eventually, in 1997, we did, we then had to push them very hard because actually Tony Blair would have wobbled, given a chance. But we'd done a lot of preparatory work. And so in 2000, we got the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which gave us the freedom to roam on land that has been mapped as open country. So... That is Mountain Moor, Heath Down and Registered Common Land. So, you know, we certainly, here we are on (laughs)
1: Burkeep Common, Common,
4: which has the right of access. Fabulous. Um, But, I mean, it has its faults. And on the downland in southern England, we didn't get very much because of the way the legislation was drafted. We're still very frustrated. And there's still issues of bits of access land that you can't get into legally. You'd have to come in by helicopter or parachute or balloon uh, (laughs) in order to get there. You can't legally walk there. And that is something that we're very anxious to
1: address.
0: There we go, Mike. So that's your second choice when you've talked about access. A little bit of a theme emerging there. Why did you pick that?
1: Well, but... c- clearly Kate is a passionate defender of walking opportunities. No better advocate, I think, has been existed for the last
0: 30 odd years. I wonder if we take it all for granted somewhat. I grew up in the 70s and 80s and a lot of those battles had been fought before... I was lucky enough to start walking, and I appreciate we got a large piece of legislation in the Right to Rome Act, but there is this constant worry that I have, which is we've got this fantastic stuff, but it doesn't stay there unless you're aware of that fact, firstly, and secondly, you keep on fighting. And it is people like Kate who are doing that work.
3: Yeah, I mean, Kate's sort of picking up the baton from... Uh, you know, the mass trespasses on Kinder Scout and uh, Winter Hill and places like that. I remember in the, was it in the 80s or the early 90s, um, going on a, a, a trespass with a, um, on to Bowlesworth Hill in the highest point in the South Pennines. Started from the, the Packhorse pub on the ridge above Ebden Bridge. Michael Meacher, who who died recently, who was a government minister at the time, I remember he he came along with us and somebody had to, Somebody had to show him how to fasten his gaiters for the <laughs> for the muddy path to Balders. So Kate's always been there. Um, she's tenacious. She's determined. She's fantastic. Um, I don't think she she gets the credit she deserves for the 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 battle she's fought on our behalves to maintain access, not just to secure access through things like the Crow Act, but to maintain it. And it's a battle that I think will be will be fighting forever. Um, just had a, the general election, and one of the, the items in the in the Tory party manifesto was to create a crime of criminal trespass, which goes against all that people like Kate have been fighting for all these years. I mean, nominally, it's there to stop uh, travellers parking in places that people don't want them to park, but it's it's open to interpretation. There's no definition. In that manifesto about what it's going to be, and I think we all need to be very, very aware um, of changing goalposts, of changing goalposts, of, of, of things shifting behind our backs. We've got this lovely Croats we've got all our national trails; it's all beautiful, but we mustn't be complacent. They can be taken away from us at any time. Uh, and you know, Kate, she's done it for so many years. We need a, a new generation as well who are aware of this and are
1: going to be
0: willing to. To carry, fight for it.
1: Carry the baton. Yeah. It, we've got to fight for right to access. Yeah. It's not a given.
0: Uh, was there anything else in the manifesto of the new government that caught your eye, John?
1: Yeah, there was the
3: wonderful commitment um, to designate uh, the Wainwright's Coast-to-Coast coast Walk as, as a national trail. I mean, it does get away from that spirit we talked about earlier about the Coast-to-Coast coast path should really be uh, an inspiration to people to explore their own ways, but nevertheless... You know, it's the most popular long-distance walk in England, if not the whole of Britain. It's one of the most spectacular in the world. And they've committed to making it a national trail which will bring about benefits to um, stuff like erosion control, Mm. waymarking. It'll become a brand. You know, it will help local industry, local uh, businesses. It'll put money into the local economy. They have to counter that, though, with the fact that they specifically said in uh, a, a kind of appendix to the manifesto that there
0: would be no budgetary provision for it. Right. It would have to come out of existing budgets. Well, there we go. That's uh, That brings us to the end of our selection of clips in this review of 2019. Uh, some housekeeping. You can find all previous episodes on our website at www.countrystride.co.uk we are on social, Mark? Oh, yes. Country Stride 1 uh, on Facebook and Twitter. And a reminder that if you subscribe on iTunes, um, please do rate us. Uh, just give us a star rating there. The more listeners we have, the, the more that we can do with Country Stride. And we really appreciate all feedback there. 2020, Mark. Oh, we ha- do, yeah. W- w- yes, we have some really interesting podcasts lined up. Give us a very, very brief... <laughs>
1: well, we've got two mountain walks uh, I've lined up. Uh, I, I couldn't resist with the winter looming. Weatherlam. Ooh. That'll be a great one. Are we're going to go up a, a ridge that Wainwright missed. Yes, this Ooh. is... Steel
0: Edge. Steel Edge. Yeah, that'll be great. Fabulous little scramble, that one.
1: And that's with George Kitching. And um, later in the month, we're going uh, up onto Ling Mel with Richard Warren from the Mountain Rescue Team, Wasdale Mountain Rescue Team. Right. We're going to have a little look at the history of access and caring for the landscape around Thirlmere.
0: That's true, yes, we are. I'm looking forward to that.
1: Uh, We've got others uh, looking at commons and Mm. farming. Uh, patterns, uh, past, and the future vision of farming.
0: It's an important anniversary year for two people who are very closely associated with Cumbria, uh, Wordsworth.
1: And Hardwick Rawlsley.
0: Yes, that's true. I wasn't going to say him but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I suppose we will now have to do something about Hardwick Rawlsley. Um, Norman Nicholson as well, the great great millen poet. So we're going to be heading down to the south coast, the furthest that we've been on Country Stride. So we come to the end of the show and we're going to have a play out by Alfred Wainwright. This is the as yet unbroadcast recording that he made in his 70s. Um, And Mark, you've got a little note there from Ron Scholes, who who made the recording.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Ron said uh, he long wanted to record a conversation with AW on tape was greatly surprised and delighted when he agreed to my request. Mm. I uh, I thought very carefully about the subject and decided that a piece on the high roads of Britain (laughs) would fill the bill, especially if the subject was the rhinos and hard-knock passes. A date was arranged and I came armed with a five-inch reel. I duly arrived to find Wainwright all ready and waiting, sitting in his favourite armchair with his cat, Totty, on his lap. (laughs) Some minutes passed by, actually long enough for him to fill his pipe, uh, and I wasn't at all too surprised when he perceptively asked the question, do you know how to use that thing? (laughs) Well, clearly he did, because here comes the little narrative itself.
0: Well, thanks for reading that out, Mark. Very lovely impression there of AW. And we should thank as well, Lakeland Walker editor, John Manning. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you ever so much. It's been a joy.
10: Joy. A Christmas joy.
0: Over to AW.
10: Many of the mountain passes in Lakeland are crossed by motor roads and all are scenically attractive. But I think the one you've chosen to discuss today is probably, and certainly is in my opinion, the finest of them all. It's a route that goes back to Roman days. The Romans had to link the forts at Ravenglass and Ambleside and devised a route which couldn't avoid the high ground altogether, but made use of two natural passes, Rhino's Pass and Hard Pass. Starting from Mambleside, you uh, pass through Langdale, cross over into Little Langdale, and there and in many places along the route, you'll find little diversions of, of extreme interest. In Little Langdale, I would mention Slater's Bridge, a short distance across the fields from the road. A bridge made of slate and distributed to the men who work the slate quarries just across, just over the bridge. There are several very, very large slate quarries there. And as a shortcut, this bridge was constructed by the men. So it probably goes by three or
11: four hundred years. I presume, A.W., that if you took that route, you you could do a fell walk, could you not? Yes, you could.
10: You're passing in Little Langdale, if in fell on one side and the outliers of the Coniston Falls on the other. Yes, you're free to wander about there. But at this point, Little Langdale Road is enclosed by stone walls, so it isn't easy to get away from it. No, indeed. Later on, as we get out of this valley and start to climb up to Rhinos, you can wander
11: anywhere. Now we're going to go uh, on our journey up the Rhinos Pass AW.
10: Right. Well, the last farmhouse that you pass is fell foot. And then the adventure starts. You're away from the valley, you're away from cultivated pastures, you're in the wild, and there's a steady incline up to the head of the pass. On the left, as you're going up, you'll find a a boulder with a flat top, and that's called the pedestal. And uh, what does that mean, A.W.? Well, according to the story, it's a place where they pack men and yes. pack women who used to carry the the trade on their back. I see. Used to rest the loads there as they were passing from one valley to the next.
11: And I believe this is actually marked on the present day maps. I think it is, yes, yes I think hmm. it is.
10: Yes, they could ease the load on the shoulders by resting the pack on the flat top of the boulder.
11: That's fascinating. At the
10: roadside. A little further up, you'll find obvious traces of the Roman Road. It's running parallel with the new road. So there are some sections that can be traced? A few, and and there is one, a good one. But uh, this part of Rhino's Pass was very badly cut up during the war because the army used it with the military machines. What a shame. Mm. But it has been restored. It's a good surface, but it's a narrow road. And then you've got, I presume, a steep little final bit to
11: get to the top of the pass. Yeah, and that's where you see the Roman road on on your right. On the right hand side. Now, according according to the all the maps, there is a three shire stone at the head of the pass. That's that's true. And the shires. And it's a bit would be...
10: obsolete now because yes. uh, <laughs> it used to represent a meeting
11: point of Lancashire, Cumberland, and Westmorland but everything there now is Cumbria. I suppose if you're coming out of the mist, having come off the fells and you see this stone pillar, at least you'll know where you are. You'll know you're at the top of Rhino's Pass. Right, we've got to the top of the pass. Now, can you recommend a couple of good mountain walks from here? Oh, yes, splendid walks. On the left, you can climb
10: up to Wetside Edge and there's now a path up there. Yes. And follow the ridge upwards over great cars to Swirl Howe. And that's part of the that, Coniston, range. Swirl Howe is in fact the highest of the Coniston farm. Yes. So that's a splendid walk and an easy one. Mm-hmm. Even easier is the walk on the right-hand side which goes up to Red Tarn. Quite a broad track... Well trodden track goes up to Red Town, and there you can start to climb either Crinkle Crags oh, yes. on the left, or you can turn around a bit and, and follow a path up to
11: Pike Oblisco. Pike Oblisco, what a lovely sounding name! It is a nice name, it almost Sounds attracts bit... people to go and yeah. to want to climb it, doesn't uh, it? Uh, uh. Right, A.W., we've had our walk, we've had a good look round from the top of the Rhino's Pass onward down the pass. Is that right? Yes, over the
10: pass the road continues, still narrow, still unenclosed, and now has the River Dudden running alongside as far as Cockley Beck, two miles further. At Cockley Beck, the valley road continues. Uh, to come down to the sea at the Dunnest, Estuary. Oh, yes, yes. But our route crosses the bridge, and after an easy start, the uh, gradients worsen, places one in three. This is a real test for the motor, says it, A.W. Uh, yes, this is no place for a learner driver. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, there's no doubt that this is the most serious motor climb in the Lake District. Yes. Up to the top of Hard Knock Pass. But then at the top of the pass, uh, the road uh, eases off. Yes. And uh, it's quite a pleasant place for a stop and a
11: picnic. I suppose you can just pull off, although there isn't much room there. There is isn't
10: you? much room. No. But there's just one or two places where you can pull off the road.
11: And what's what's the view from there like,
10: Ada? Well... The most charming thing about the view from Hardenough is the lovely valley of Estelle mm. which you see winding away towards the sea. Lovely. There's rough ground on the left but you can negotiate it and arrive at the top of Fell, a beautiful mountain.
11: That's the peak, uh, uh, very as you say a very beautiful peak on our left hand side.
10: Yeah. Although mm. Its beauty isn't obvious till you get down in the valley. Ah. You're on a rather indeterminate ridge as you're going up to the top. So its its best aspect is viewed from
11: lower down? Yeah, but
10: the summit of Fell is, is one of my favourite spots in the lake. Is it really? All yes. rock. In fact, you can't really say that you're on the highest point until you've done a bit of rock
11: climbing. And that's what you find at the top of Fell.
10: That's Fell. yeah. Now, the road now descends into esdale Another couple of miles across an open moor, mm. still unenclosed, still narrow. Yes. But before you actually reach the valley, on a little shelf on the right is the f- best of the Roman camps in Lakeland, the best preserved of the local camps in Lakeland. This Roman fort, as a Roman name, but is much better known as Hard Knot Castle. And it's well worth just a short distance that you have to walk to get to it.
11: <laughs>
10: it's in a remarkable state of preservation, partly because the Ministry of Works some years ago rebuilt some of the walls. But there you can see the Commandant's House, the granaries, the parade ground. Everything's laid out for you. And best of all, from my point of view, is the uh, superb view of the Schofield Range and the head of Estelle that you get from the north gate of the fort. So you can look right up the river Esk Absolutely. as far as you can go? Right, right up to the Schofield Range. Well, that was- that, that's the, the great appeal of Hard Not
11: to me because I'm not a... a an antiquarian or an archaeologist. I, I believe, from fragments uh, excavated, that the fort was garrisoned by a cohort of, of, of the Dalmatians. Sounds like a, a uh, number of dogs. Yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, I, I presume that's uh, what we now call Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um, how do you think they would feel? Uh, these soldiers you used would to feel be, very lonely and used to the sun on their backs. Yeah. Very lonely. And very and very cold, no doubt. Very cold with, with the Lake very. District winters.
10: And you follow the road down, and it's
11: widening now, because it gets more traffic in the valley. Now, what 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 attractions are there? Aw, for for the traveller, for the motorist, for the walker.
10: Well, it's no attraction to me, but there is a youth hostel. <laughs> more attraction to me is the Woolpack Hotel. Indeed, a bit further down. yeah. And then the quaint little. It's hardly a village of Boot. Mm. Uh, well worth a stop. And from Boot, you can follow a, a moorland road over Bo- 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 Moor Town to Wasdale Head. And that's an old corpse road again. Ah, yes, yes. Or you can uh, wander up the other side of the valley to Berker,
11: on Berker Moor. There's Burker Force there, there's Dale Garth Force. So you've got walks, uh, short walks for, oh, for, yes. for the motorists so these are That's not right. these aren't mountain excursions, but, but, no, they're but not. I'm discriminating not walks for the for the walker. Discriminating walks for the walker and especially
10: for the crowds of people who come up to boot on the little railway. Oh yes. Uh, ratty. Low ratty. Yeah. Yes. Now these are short walks that they can well. Well done, between trains. Between trains.